there are few things that rain down shame on an evangelical more than perceived sexual sin. Whether or not you decide to sleep with someone is not a matter of spiritual discipline. It's about personal wants and ethics. It's a matter of what you know about you and determining to make choices that empower you while not damaging the other person or people involved. These thoughts are just going to come in and they're going to set up shop. It's yeah. that simple and it's completely normal. But most of us had already had this shame driven into us over it to the point where that was the one thing that we believed was keeping us from knowing God better. If we are to assume that this God is real, he cares nothing about how people interact with each other. He only cares how people interact with him and whether or not they do what he tells them to do. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell, and it's time to get unbound. I swear I won't tease you, won't tell you no lies. It's nobody's business what goes on between your thighs. Your pastor and others may have things to say, but it's really your decision at the end of the day if you have sex. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are going to be talking about one of the most divisive topics out there, I think how single people are supposed to manage sex as Christians. And, oh, did I come up with some fodder for this one. Mm -hmm. A couple of really, really wigged out what-the-fuck kind of articles that we're going to look at. And hopefully by the end, we'll be able to provide you with a little bit more of an objective viewpoint on this that you can pick up and run with right to whoever's bedroom that you want. Um, (laughs) Wow. So, I mean, well, we'll think about it. Think about it. We're talking about becoming unbound from all of this stinking thinking. And that means every part of you becomes unbound. That means your mind. That means your body. The decisions that you make about things are no longer governed by what some Bronze Age book has to say about them. They're not governed by what some imaginary deity has to say. But even in that regard, there's so much crosstalk. that it's impossible to really piece together what God actually thinks about this. And honestly, he doesn't think much about it. And we're going to get into that a little bit more too. But before we get into the meat of our message tonight, I just want to put out another quick appeal. Our Patreon account can be found at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network. If you've got a fiver you can throw our way, we would be very happy to have it. And it will help us to expand what we're doing a little bit more. We've got a good thing going here. And I'm noticing over the last few weeks that our downloads are starting to go all over the map. There are new people that are discovering the show. They're seeing topics that kind of strike a chord with them and they're downloading the episodes. So it's not like it's been for quite a while where the new episode gets a lot of play. And then maybe the one or two before get a little bit. No. The downloads this past couple of weeks have been all over the map. So people are listening. So if that's you and you appreciate what we're doing here, we really appreciate you considering supporting us on Patreon and also doing all the other stuff that helps a podcast grow, like giving us the five-star ratings where applicable, 
sharing out content on social media where it's relevant and just letting people know that we're there. Pretty much every podcast that I listen to, I discovered because someone else told me about it. So I'm going to put out the same call to action that I do almost every week here. Tell someone new about this show this week. If you think it's a valuable resource and you know someone who could benefit from the content that we produce, let them know that we're out here because that's going to be the easiest way for us to keep growing what we do here. That's really all I'm going to say about that. Also, YouTube, just real quick. We really could use some subs on YouTube. I really want to start using that platform a little bit more and doing a little bit more with it. But with the number of subs that we have right now and the number of views that we get on our content, I'm just afraid that if I do YouTube only content, no one's going to see it. So sub up, hit the bell, and hopefully within the next few weeks or so, depending on how things go, you'll start getting more notifications on YouTube that we've got stuff there that you're not going to get through the podcast apps. Right. And also along those lines, we are out there anywhere you get podcasts at this point. I haven't found a platform yet that we haven't hit. And if your favorite one is not one that we have hit, then let me know so that I can send our RSS feed to them and get on that platform as well. And if you have any topics in mind that we haven't covered yet and that you want us to talk about, just drop us a line. Absolutely. Especially if you have something to say. Yes. You don't have to have a successful podcast. You don't have to be anyone that anyone knows. Right. Everybody's Unbound story matters. So if you have a story that you want to tell that you think people will benefit from hearing, I also put out a tweet this week for certain topics that we're trying to get guests for. So if you think that you've got something to say, by all means, contact us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com, or you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook or wherever you find us, wherever you hear us, wherever you interact with us. We would love to hear from you. And yes, absolutely. This is, we do this for you. I, I do it for me to the extent that, you know, it's cathartic because of what I've been through, but I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this because hopefully somewhere down the line, it's going to change some people's lives. And if you think that you have a story that has life changing power or that you just want to get it off your chest and reaffirm for yourself that there are other people out there who understand what you're going through then by all means, contact us. We want to talk to you and we want to have you on. So with that, let's get into the heart of our message. As I was sitting down to research this week's episode, I opened up Google, just like I always do, looking for resources. And sometimes they're hard to find, mostly because of the spin that we put on things Evangelicals, as I've said before on the show, are really, really good at hiding their tracks. So a lot of times it's difficult to find specific information on a subject that I'm researching. But this time around, just the initial Google search for the subject for this episode brought up something really interesting. Now, this really wasn't a surprise. It just confirmed what I already knew. This is a topic that Christians 
find important. Not from the enforcement angle, like what's going to happen to me if I explore sexually, but it's more from the angle of personal wants and desires. And you can tell by what Christians search on this topic that this is something that they want and they desire and they are not satisfied with the answers that they're getting. They're curious about this thing called sex, but they're also scared to death of offending their God with how they manage it. So here are just a few of the related searches that popped up when I typed single Christians and sex into Google. Is it a sin to explore your body? How to stay pure while single? What does the Bible say about arousal? If you're burning with passion, just that phrase, if you're burning with passion, and then celibacy in Christianity. Well, let's take just a few minutes and look at these. Is it a sin to explore your body? In a word, no. Next question. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, it absolutely is not a sin to explore your body. You know, I've I've heard it explained this way before. I don't remember precisely where. It was either a podcast or some kind of radio show where the host made the point that, you know, it's impossible to tickle yourself or largely difficult to tickle yourself. I think that I've managed it once or twice, but probably not on purpose. Right. But giving yourself an orgasm is not a difficult thing to achieve. And I don't understand how you can look at something that your body does naturally that you can actually control and manipulate a little bit as being something that is sinful. If it's sinful, why were we made that way? How come I can't tickle myself, but I can get myself off? It it makes no sense. How do you stay pure while single? Okay, well, define pure. What exactly does that mean? We're going to take a look at what some other people think it means, but that word purity, oh my God, does it have... It's a loaded word. It's a loaded word, and in certain contexts... It can be rage-inducing, especially when you consider what that word means in the context of this subject when it comes from the mind of an evangelical. What does the Bible say about arousal? Outside the Song of Solomon, not much. No, yeah, nothing. But, I mean, all you have to do is read a little bit between the lines there. And this is someone who is worried about how often they become sexually aroused. And this can be men or women. Right. But for the most part, these are the guys that have these fears about what's really going on in my head if I'm getting erections all the time. Mm. Well, I'm sorry. When I was 14, 15, 16 years old, I could get an erection in the middle of math class Mm. for no reason whatsoever. So what does the Bible have to say about arousal? Probably nothing good, but nothing really concrete that you can dive into and exegete and explore and study. There's really nothing. And then there's this phrase, if you're burning with passion. Well, what does that tell me? It tells me that there are a lot of Christians out there who understand that they are sexual creatures right? and they don't know how to deal with it because they haven't been taught how to deal with it. Celibacy in Christianity, well, you know, that really is the bottom line solution that they offer people. And then they do it in such a manipulative way. Oh, yeah. One of these articles in particular, I almost had to give myself my own trigger warning going through this stuff because and and it's happened before where I'm researching stuff for this show and it's all just so rage inducing. Sometimes I have to put down the laptop and walk away 
and okay, you can't get overly emotional about this. You have to talk about it at least semi-objectively, at least from the standpoint of what you want to say about it. And I've gotten a little hot under the collar on this show before, and I don't apologize for that, but I think this is a topic where there's enough uncomfortableness to begin with without adding the extra dose of righteous anger to it. So I went through two articles in particular that I'm going to reference a little bit later, and the bile oh yeah that existed in these in these articles was just it was rage inducing i i had a couple of walk away moments yeah. put it that way but the fact that these related searches were the ones that topped the list tells me without a doubt that christians want to know more about their own sexuality and that they lack education and objective viewpoints on these and a lot of other related subjects now, when it comes to indoctrination about sexuality, it starts early, yeah. sometimes early childhood. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about that Christian school that had a class on marriage for second graders? Yeah. Well, yeah. there are varying motivations behind that. Right. But it just goes to prove how early on they want to get this thinking in there. It reaches a fever pitch when children hit puberty. And the idea of controlling people's sexual behavior is also an integral element to evangelical indoctrination. They take this subject very seriously, and there are few things that rain down shame on an evangelical more than perceived sexual sin. Oh, yeah. We are taught from the time that we can understand or from the time that we enter this thing called evangelical Christianity, that we're supposed to treat our sexuality as something from which we need protection and that we must learn to control it if we want our lives to reflect the newness of being born again and the transformation by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus, as referenced in Romans 12 too. If we fail to keep this part of us under wraps, it is indicative of a false profession of faith and a failure to let the Holy Spirit have reign over our thoughts and deeds. You can't claim to be a new creation while still adhering to a way of thinking and behaving that you did before you got saved. This is all stuff I used to preach on. Oh, yeah. I, I know. mean, I seriously. So if you have sex outside of marriage, you are living in a state of unconfessed sin and in many evangelical circles. That leaves you either backslidden or having never been saved in the first place. See, that's how the Baptists get around this whole once saved, always saved thing. Oh, yeah. They'll say, well, you know what? If you prayed that sinner's prayer, came down to the altar, did all the things, but then went home and slept with your boyfriend again, guess what? You were never saved in the first place. It's not yeah. even a matter of losing your salvation. You didn't mean it, so you never got it. And, of course, that sort of behavior also leaves you in danger of going to hell even after accepting the gift of God's salvation for yourself. Because, again, if you continue sinning, then you didn't mean it. Right. There are few things used to judge Christians more widely, more harshly, or more critically than sexuality and sexual behavior. You're guilted if you don't tithe. You get passive-aggressive greeting cards if you don't show up at church for a couple weeks. <laughs> but you are mercilessly outed, shamed, and practically dehumanized if you fail sexually. So let's take a look at some of the lies that we're told about our sexuality when we leave this subject in the hands of evangelical leaders. Mm. For starters, you have to be married to have sex. That's just a given. You have to suppress your urges until you're married. 
And guess what? That means not masturbating either. Mm-hmm. Physical contact of any kind with a member of the opposite sex, we won't even get into the alternative lifestyles aspect of this right now. But just having physical contact with someone else will, will, will lead to sex and you'll regret it. That was Word of Life's whole thing. Oh, yeah. Now, I found that the Pentecostal churches that I went to weren't quite as puritanical as this. They didn't really look down on a teenage couple holding hands or anything like that. It, It really, there were things that were tolerated that wouldn't have been, say, on Word of Life Island. And I attended more than one seminar on managing your sexuality at like age 13, 14, or 15. They were drilling this into us at camp too. There was at least one talk during the week every single year that I was there that dealt specifically with this subject. And then the call to action at the end was to stand up if you agreed that you were going to take a hands-off approach to your relationships until you were married. And of course, pretty much everybody in that place stood up. Nobody wanted to be seen sitting down. Not for that. No. Not in that context, that's for sure. So of course, the entire room was on its feet every single time. But this very notion that holding hands will lead to sex, that they, they, they told us this in so many words, that holding hands with someone will eventually lead to sex if you leave those behaviors unchecked. Kissing, oh, that was even more problematic because now it escalates into things like touching and heavy petting and all of that. There's a degree of truth to that, but I think about the whole argument about alcoholics where a lot of, a lot, most evangelical sects discourage or flat out tell you that you must not indulge in alcohol because every alcoholic took that first drink, didn't he? Well, yeah. Well, yes, but not everyone who ever drank alcohol became an alcoholic. I've drank plenty of alcohol in my 49 years on this planet. And fun fact, I've never been drunk. Right. So there goes that theory. So no, certain behaviors and activities are not a de facto lead into sex. No, not at all. That's not the way that it has to work. Can it? Sure. Does it? Sometimes. But does it have to? Absolutely not. Then there's the notion that sex outside of marriage will damage you physically and emotionally. Oh my God, did they run a train on this one with us Mm -hmm. too. Oh yeah. Making it sound like if you had sex before you were married, then you were just damaged goods after that. What what were some of the the things that Uh, they used? The chewed... Sticky tape. Sticky tape and chewed uh, chewed gum. gum. Um crumpled paper Mm -hmm. there was just a lot of them and it was all like really disgusting oh yeah it was all like super super gross you lose your utility value you lose your aesthetic you lose anything that you had that was virtuous when you give this away to someone who is not your spouse and that's complete and total bullshit and we're going to get into reasons why a little bit later about that too Then there's the notion that you have to settle on one partner for life. Unless your partner dies while you're still young enough to have another, and then the contract somehow resets, I guess. Because there's that verse that I forgot to write down, and I know it's in there, where it says that it's appointed unto every man one woman and, and every woman one man. That's in there. But at the same time, this was another thing that was brought up to me 
when I was a teenager, we were discussing, you know, I, I kind of gave a little nod to George Michael at the beginning. Yeah. But there was an interesting conversation that happened one week during youth group about the video for that song. Oh, yeah. Because there's this one frame, and I think it's only a couple of frames in the video where you see this. There's a sign that somebody's holding up that says explore monogamy. <laughs> so what that was interpreted to us as meaning, and this is what our youth pastor told us. It's like monogamy means one partner, period, one sexual partner. But in George Michael land, it means one partner at a time. Hmm. which is the way that a lot of people deal with their relationships. Uh, The vast majority deal with their relationships that way. And even when you follow quote unquote biblical models, which are very, very loose to begin with, the whole one man, one woman thing resets. If someone dies, that's where the whole till death to us part thing comes in. Right. So if your partner dies, then you are now free to select another one. So, the whole explore monogamy thing does, in fact, make its way into the evangelical model of marriage. It's just that you can't get divorced and remarry. Someone has to die before you can experience this and explore it with someone else. Sexual attraction to someone you don't necessarily want to marry is wrong. You can't look upon a woman with lust because if you look upon a woman with lust, you're committing adultery in your heart. That's Jesus talking right there. (laughs) So being attracted to someone without having the thought in your head of marrying them, well, that's basically emotional rape. And no, it really is not. No. Strong sexual attraction to someone you don't know well and don't look at as marriage material is an indicator of sinful tendencies or unconfessed sin, (laughs) mostly the sin of lust. Let me tell you, there was that one part in the VN weekend where we would literally nail our sins to the cross. They would come around with these little sheets of paper and you were supposed to write down the one thing that you felt was keeping you from really knowing God and being a better Christian and all of this. You were supposed to write it down on this piece of paper, and that was your confession of sin that you would then bring up to the front and literally, physically nail it to a cross that was in the front of the room. And I know because we would confer a little bit afterwards. Those of us who trusted each other, We would confer on this and sexual thoughts, lust, these kinds of things were a major thing that got nailed to the cross. No, that makes sense. Because we had been so shamed into even thinking these sorts of things. Not that when you're 13, 14, 15, even 16, because VN, you're 16. Yeah. But even at 16 years old, these thoughts are just going to come in and they're going to set up shop. It's that simple and it's completely normal. But most of us had already had this shame driven into us over it to the point where that was the one thing that we believed was keeping us from knowing God better. And it's the sentiment that comes up in at least one of these articles that I'm going to reference in a little while too. Let's see, what else do I have here? You can commit adultery or fornication through nothing more than lustful thoughts. We just went over that one. That's right. Jesus talking about how just... looking at someone with lust is the same as doing it with them. And no, it is not. Birth control is wrong in or out of marriage. 
how many lies were we told about this? Oh, yeah, right. To the point where we didn't want to even consider it yes. until we talked to an actual medical professional about it and learned what it was really all about. Right. Using birth control while single is indicative of an intent to sin. Yeah, no. No, it really isn't because yeah. I know plenty of women, especially young women, who the first few years of their periods can be very volatile mm-hmm. and can be very painful. Yeah. And the pill can actually help regulate right. and alleviate some of the pain yeah. that they experience. So just because a girl is on the pill does not mean that she's DTF. Yes. Okay? That's not and a what lot it of, means. And a lot of girls get prescribed for acne, like cystic acne, which yep. is really painful. Cystic acne sucks. It does. I have had it. It is not fun. And I think it's neat that the ladies have something that they can use for that that right. isn't a topical. Right. It's I'm, a little bit more comprehensive. Right. It's Yeah, it controls the hormones so that it doesn't get as bad. Right. You know, as hormonal acne can sometimes get. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of reasons, and I can't, I don't know them all, but I know that there's a lot more reasons to regulate your hormones. Oh, yeah. All it does is regulate your hormones. Mm-hmm. It just makes your womb inhospitable to conception, basically. Right. Right. That's the sum total of what it does. Yeah. It simply makes it impossible for the egg to implant. Right. So, you know, we were told that it was abortive and it right. is absolutely not abortive. No, it, it is not. Isn't, it doesn't facilitate or create an environment for fertilization. So, no, it is not abortive in any way, shape or form. But we were led to believe that, weren't oh, we? Oh, sure. Yeah. Through more than one source, we were led to believe that. Oh, sure. It's crazy. And the last little bullet point on this list that I came up with, these are just brainstorming points. Your virginity matters. So let's talk for a few minutes about what this thing called virginity is. Now, when we were putting together the notes for this and doing our little pre-show conference Mm. that we do, I said, you know what? The women out there are not going to want a guy mansplaining this. (laughs) So there's a link in the show notes to an article in Planned Parenthood that goes through this very succinctly, but I'm going to have Shell talk about this one, what this whole concept of virginity actually entails. And I think especially if you are evangelical or just coming out of this, I think you're going to find this interesting. So what exactly is a quote-unquote virgin? A virgin is someone who's never had sex. Okay. That's it. Right. But, I mean, that applies to men or women. Right. But in terms of women, there's a physical aspect to it as well. There can be a physical aspect to it. The vagina has, in its opening, has a thin tissue called the hymen that stretches and flexes as you go through your cycle every month. Sometimes it's only big enough to maybe get a tampon in during your period and let blood out. But, you know, a lot of times it can be more flexible, like when you have a baby. Yep. You know, it's it's very flexible, it's very thin, and sometimes, not all the time, sometimes the first time you have sex, it can stretch and bleed a little bit. And that can happen doing a number of things. Right. It can happen inserting a tampon. It can happen as a result of masturbation. 
it can happen as a result of a bad fall. Yeah, one girl I knew in like grade school had it happen while she she was doing a penny drop from the uh, jungle gym and basically just fell really hard. Yeah. Horseback riding, bike riding, yeah. running. A lot of track and field people have had that happen. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's not like a freshness seal. No, you no. You cannot pop it. It doesn't pop. No, no. There's no cherry to pop. That's the thing. It's not like a membrane covering the whole thing. It is not a freshness seal. Right. But that's how they described it, at least in the circles that I moved in. Well, you know. It was described as something that that created a barrier. That you penetrate. Exactly. But it doesn't. It can't. No. And with all due respect, if there is something holding your vagina closed... How on earth does period blood pass? Right. Isn't this a great conversation? It is a great a conversation. <laughs> no, but... Um, no, it's a frank conversation. Yes. And that's what we need here. Right. And there is there's some women who have a hymen that does cover too much. It's not like completely closed, but it covers too much. And they have to have that taken care of by a doctor. Right. Because sex is never going to feel good because right. you don't break it. It no. can stretch and it can rupture, but... It's just like anything else, it's going to heal. Right. So there are some women out there, if they want to enjoy sex, they need to have this procedure to basically make sure that it's not getting in the way. Right. But it never goes away. It's not something that, like like you said, it's not a freshness seal. No, but uh, just once your hymen is stretched open, it won't grow back. The idea of regaining your sexuality by abstaining for a certain amount of time, a lot of women will say, oh, it'll grow back. But and here's the thing. It, it doesn't really, quote doesn't, unquote, grow back. No, it but just, over, from, from what I've been told, if a lot of time passes, and we're not talking weeks or even months, we're talking if a lot of time like passes. decades. Then it can become more elastic again. And it can go back to its original shape, but it takes a long time. And even at that point, it's been stretched and manipulated to the point where if a woman starts having sex again, it's not going to be the uncomfortable thing that it could be the first couple of times. Right. And some women don't even have that issue. No. Which some women don't. I was surprised to learn that because everything that I knew about this part of it came from my youth pastor and other resources within evangelical circles and nothing from science. Absolutely nothing from the standpoint of science. No, there wouldn't be anything from science because they don't want you to believe science. They don't want you to trust it. No. They just want you to believe them. There are some cultures and... I think that this might show up in the Bible once or twice. I don't know. I think it's more of a cultural thing where, and this came out in a youth group talk too. There are some cultures where blood on the wedding night is used as proof of purity. Right. What about these women who don't bleed? Because plenty of them don't. Right. And... In those instances, it raised all kinds of questions as to what she was doing before she got married. Now, 
it has nothing to do with what she was doing before she got married. It has to do with who her parents were and what genetics were imparted to her. Right. That made that membrane small enough to not matter. This, in some cultures to this day, is used as proof of purity. Right. And I don't even want to think about what these women who it doesn't happen to go through as a result of that. Yeah. Because it is a concept as old as misogyny itself. Mm. And all of this bad information about female anatomy and what happens when a woman has sex for the first time is rooted in misogyny also. Because it's definitely framed in a way that gives the man control. The man is taking something from her that is of extreme value. And that's the spin that's placed on it. If you lose your virginity, you're losing something that you can never get back. Well, that's true to the extent that now your brain has cataloged the experience and knows what sex is and knows what it feels like. But the catastrophic emotional damage that they say it can do is ridiculous. And we're going to, I'm going to qualify that a little bit later too. But since I've been talking up these god-awful articles that I found, I don't think I can avoid it anymore. I think we're just going to need to get into this now. <laughs> um, this is from a website called Boundless.org. And the title of the article is What's the Purpose of Sexuality If I'm Single? By Julie Slattery from Boundless.org. Brace yourselves, <laughs> people. This, this, is, this is going to take a turn. The article refers to a concept called biblical sexuality. That's right in the very beginning. It uses the term biblical sexuality. My question here is which interpretation of biblical sexuality are you referring to? Because there are many. There's let's fuck our drunk dad so we can make babies with them biblical sexuality. That's the daughters of Lot in Genesis 19. I can't give you a baby, so fuck my servant and have one with her biblical sexuality. That's the story of Abraham and Hagar. Sarah literally hands over her slave to her husband to make a baby with. So now we've got the concept of slavery being painted in a positive light again. And what really amounts to raping a slave. Right. Because you think that Hagar had any say in this whatsoever? Of course she didn't. Then there's, I see a naked lady, so let's kill off her husband so I can fuck her. Biblical sexuality. That's the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. Then you've got horny boss's wife, biblical sexuality. That's Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. Notice how many of these come from Genesis? I'm starting to revisit in my head the whole cancers in Genesis thing. And starting to talk about some of this just flat out morally devoid bullshit. Yeah. That's just in this Bad. first book of this god-awful tome. Then you've got Feed Your Daughters to Rapists, Biblical Sexuality, which comes up twice, Genesis 19 and Judges 19. This is the same story with yeah. different characters. So you want to tell me a little bit more about how all of this stuff actually happened? It's clear allegory, and this is proof right here. Same story in two different places where you've got this kind of God-ish figure that is staying with someone. And then the quote-unquote evil men of the village 
surround the house and demand that this person be sent outside so that they can rape him. And in one in one instance, it's Lot. I forget who it was in the other. Yeah. But in one instance, it's like, you know what? I'm not going to send out my guest, but you can fuck my daughters. Yeah. You know, that's really. that was that's pretty much the way that went. Then there's rape and reparations, biblical sexuality, Deuteronomy 22, which is basically where if you get caught raping a girl, if you get caught, there's the caveat. If you get caught raping a girl, then you have to pay off her father and marry her. Okay. Then there's 700 wives and 300 concubines, biblical sexuality. That's King Solomon in 1 Kings 11. You've got accidental polyamory, biblical sexuality. That's the story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel in Genesis 29, where Jacob works for Rachel's father. She's, She's the one that he actually loves. And he's told that he has to work for her father for seven years before he's allowed to marry her. So he does it. And then he shows up for the wedding. He lifts up the veil. Surprise, it's Leah. Yeah. And dad says, well, you know what? If you want Rachel, you can have her too for seven more years service. So there you go. Accidental polyamory right there in the Bible. Then the last one on my list, and I'm sure there are more. I'm sure that oh, if I yeah. did some digging, I could come up with more. Probably. But the last one on my list here is gay love. We don't want to discuss directly biblical sexuality. That is 1 Samuel 18 with the story of David and Jonathan. And I'm sorry, that was not a platonic relationship. Not by any stretch of the imagination was that platonic. And then you've got Ruth and Naomi in the book of Ruth. And the thing that I found real interesting about this, even back in the day, even in my Bible college days, I thought it was significant that the way that their relationship is framed in the verses of that book is almost point by point, letter by letter, jot by jot, and tittle by tittle the same as the way that the relationship between Adam and Eve is described in Genesis. Mm. So you want to talk to me a little bit more about how this isn't a lesbian relationship? Bullshit. That's exactly what it is. You know what's never examined, outlined, or taught in the Bible, just mentioned in a few unrelated verses? Why, the marriage model that we adhere to today and call, quote-unquote, biblical marriage. I mean, just looking at the story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, you have to wonder what biblical marriage actually is. Right. But this is what the people who write articles on this subject and want to control other people's private parts, this is what they refer to as biblical marriage because it's convenient. There is more specificity in the Bible about owning slaves than there is about what a marriage or acceptable sexual relationship is. Heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman and lifelong fidelity between them isn't a concrete biblical model by a long shot. The Bible showcases such a diversity of relationship dynamics, it is impossible to whittle down the definition of biblical sexuality to a single set of features, rules, morals, ethics, or even acceptable guidelines. Think about it. David killed Bathsheba's husband so he could have sex with her. He succeeded on both counts, and yet he was called a man after God's own heart. And yes, it's alleged that he repented later. I think it's Psalm 51, created me a clean heart. That was supposed to be his 
his confession and act of repentance for that. But still, there are consequences in the Old Testament for everything from sassing your parents to picking up sticks on the Sabbath. But having sex with your father, um, no lightning bolts there. That's what the daughters of Lot did. Amassing a harem that's bigger than most church congregations, that's A-OK with Yahweh too. You raped a girl, or let's be fair here because I've heard it interpreted this way too. You raped a girl or just had sex with your girlfriend and got caught? God's going to stay out of that one too. No smiting here. Just pay off her father and marry her and it's all good. And there's more here. Oh, there's so much more. Let's look at some of the more stupid assertions that are made by the author of this article. For starters, she says that, and this is a direct quote, God intentionally created our sexuality to be a metaphor that teaches us of his covenant love. Yeah, pregnant pause that I'm leaving in. I guess the point is that the sexual bond between two people is a metaphor for God's bond with humanity. Well, okay, but what about things like divorce? What about when a partner leaves or dies? What part does sex play in these scenarios? It's not answered no. in the article at all. Then there's this, another direct quote. Think of it this way. Everything God created on earth was intentionally designed to express something about his character and nature. The Bible refers to physical things like trees, water, wind, and animals to communicate spiritual truths to us. Likewise, our experiences of hunger, thirst, fatigue, and illness are metaphors demonstrating our spiritual needs and condition. Um, no. Okay, no. just no. Hunger, thirst, fatigue, and illness are indicative of physical needs and conditions. If my body is starving, it demands food. If my body is dehydrating, it demands water. If my body is sick, that isn't spiritual. There's no such thing as spiritual cancer, regardless of what any psychic surgeon would like you to believe. All this does is set the stage for an argument that lust and sex drive are also spiritual concepts. And they're not. They're purely physical, mental, and emotional. We start by spiritualizing our need for food and water and follow through with spiritualizing sex. Here's the thing. I can live without sex. I don't want to, but I can. <laughs> I can't live without food or water, though. That's the thing. There's no spiritual discipline that negates those very physical needs, and there is nothing I can learn by not seeing to them other than that denying my body these things will result in a slow, painful death. And there is nothing that I can learn from denying myself sexually besides how shitty it feels and how it drives my thoughts and emotions into places I may or may not be equipped to manage before they turn self-destructive or start doing damage to others. Then, to qualify the whole covenant aspect of the argument, there are these three bullet points. Sexual desire invites you to pursue covenant. Sexual intimacy within marriage is the celebration of covenant, and sexual faithfulness is the promise of covenant. Oh, she sets this up well. Now our ability to save sex for marriage and keep it in marriage is indicative of the depth of our commitment to Christ. Translation, if you don't do things this way, you will never understand God and you will never be a good Christian. Right. That's precisely what she's saying. The next point she makes is that our sex drive exists to teach us spiritual discipline. Okay. What? Now, now, to be fair, there is a lot to be said for having restraint. For some, 
jumping from encounter to encounter can skew their view of sex. It can damage their self-esteem and can make forming strong bonds with their partners difficult. But for others, those kinds of bonds might not even be what they want. Some people actually want a less involved, less intimate experience of sex. They don't have to be in love or even care that much about the other person that they're with. There is nothing wrong with this if everyone involved has the same motives and understandings of what the relationship is, if one even exists. I mean, one-nighters are still and always will be a thing, too. And I'm not sure that I would characterize a one-nighter as a relationship. Right. That's, that is what it is. But I wouldn't call it a relationship. The point is that restraint means different things to different people. For some, it means thinking twice before sleeping with someone and having clear goals and objectives for what they want the encounter or relationship to mean. For others, it means inventorying things about a potential partner over time and deciding if it's a good match before they do the thing. Whether or not you decide to sleep with someone is not a matter of spiritual discipline. It's about personal wants and ethics. It's a matter of what you know about you and determining to make choices that empower you while not damaging the other person or people involved. The next point that she wants to make here is that our sexuality is designed to trick us into getting married, and she says it in so many words. It's designed to trick us into getting married so we can understand the concept of a covenant. And here's another quote. Marriage is metaphor. For most Christians, Sexual desire will eventually lead us to the covenant vows of marriage. Largely because of sexual and romantic longings, we will sacrifice time, money, and our vocational goals to pursue love. I've never done any of those things. I, I can't speak for anyone else, but I have never done any of these things. But according to her, this is a good thing. Back to the quote. In one respect, sexual longings trick us into making a lifelong promise that will ask far more from us than what we anticipate. But in working out this covenant promise over a lifetime, we relationally and physically live out the metaphor of how God loves his people and how Jesus loves his bride. So the basic sentiment here is that our understanding of God and our relationship with him is the culmination of a lifetime of learning how to manage our sexuality. In the mind of the author, it all hinges on that. Our level of sexual discipline indicates how well we understand how much God loves us. It's kind of creepy. Yeah, very creepy. Yeah, very, very creepy. Is there a more toxic way to see ourselves and our very natural urges that may or may not revolve around one person forever? I don't think there is. I haven't seen anything more toxic than this concept right here. This one was a new one for me when I saw this. If God is capable of loving more than one person, why is it a bad thing for us to love more than one person? Having multiple partners is not indicative of a lack of ability to understand the concept of a covenant. It's indicative of having individual wants and needs that should be explored in safe, healthy, and positive ways, whether you are doing it the George Michael way and exploring monogamy or if you are in another kind of lifestyle where you don't have to do these things one at a time and you can explore in tandem in instances of things like ethical non-monogamy or polyamory these sorts of things there are numerous ways that you can explore your sexuality and it's completely moral and ethical 
as long as you're operating within the rules of the relationship or relationships that you are in, that's the only criteria. The right. other people, the other person slash people involved are what matter here. Not what some book has to say and certainly not what this crackpot has to say. I think actually I can really only handle one more quote here. So let's have at it. Quote, as a single person, you are invited to give yourself away through self-denial and service to the family of God. Your unmet sexual longings and needs are a physical reminder that you were meant for intimacy, ultimately intimacy with God. I feel like I need a shower Ugh. after reading that one. I mean, come on now. Really? How far are you really going to take this lady? I can't think of a single verse that conveys the sentiment in this kind of concrete way. Not one. The only one that I think comes close is Ephesians 5.25, where Paul is talking about how husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself as a ransom for it. But even that says nothing about how we reciprocate that love when it's directed at Christ. It certainly doesn't say anything about our relationship with Christ being intimate in any remotely sexual context, not yeah. even a little. So on the heels of that, I came across this other article from a website called harvestusa.org. And this is an article titled Sexuality and the Single Christian, Godly Answers in a Confusing World. This is um, another, another female author, which, I mean, it kind of blows my mind. Honestly, I think sometimes they are way more into this than, you know, the whole chastity thing. Well, yeah, I think that women they have this stuff. They kind of have to be. Yeah, but they have it pounded into them pretty yeah. heavily. It's hard. From yeah. very early on. I mean, boys, we get shamed when we get a boner. Yeah. But it's nothing compared to what girls go through. With the scrutiny over how they dress, oh, yeah. makeup, hair, all of this stuff. That quote-unquote entices the boys. Oh, no, they get it yeah. way, way, way harder than oh, we do. Oh. So this is an article by Ellen Mary Dykus. And again, fake Jesus help me. I'm going to go through some of, the, some of the crazy in this one, too. Because she looks at it from a slightly different angle, but also has some of the same sorts of sentiments. Right. This article deals quite a bit with the concept of chastity because as single Christians, the sexual lifestyle that you are supposed to adhere to is one of chastity. And in this article, chastity is defined as a manifestation of our sexuality, not a denial of our urges. This is, in my opinion, an incredibly manipulative way of dealing with this. Chastity is in fact an act of self-denial. It is a decision not to explore our sexuality, not a way of expressing it. Again, there is nothing wrong with this level of self-denial or self-control, however you want to look at it, if that's how you're wired. And there are people who are. There are people to whom the concept of sex isn't that big a deal. More power to them. There are some times, some days, some instances where I wish I was one of them. But I'm also thankful that I have the brain that I have and the urges that I have and the drive that I have, too. But here's the thing. Most of us simply are not wired for abstinence. It's just right. not a thing that our brains and our emotions will allow us to embrace. 
Ask anyone who's ever been abused by a priest how good he was at managing his vow of chastity. Yeah. They all have to take one. And incidentally, since we're on this subject, I'm going to, a little bit of an aside here before I have to deal with more of this dreck from this article. (laughs) Do you know what the whole thing with chastity and priests actually comes from? Do you know what the reason is? Yeah, it's because the priests might bequeath church land to their sons. It goes even further than that. Yeah. The church wanted to maintain control of all of their properties and all of that. Right. But the bigger issue was that since the Catholic Church was also big on not using birth control, there was a time when Catholic priests married, had families. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a long time ago, long going back to the Middle ago. Ages. But... There was a time when priests were allowed to marry. Well, the whole vow of chastity thing came along because the church decided that they didn't want to have to support a priest and his family. It was an economic decision, not a spiritual one, but it was given a spiritual spin because now chastity is considered a spiritual discipline. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? If you're not disciplined enough in your own head to adhere to these insane standards, then what happens is you start diddling the altar boys. That's one one of the outgrowths of this. And there are others, but that's the one that's most visible. I do not think that priests are born pedophiles or that they go into this particular ministry because they are pedophiles. I think that they are made into pedophiles as a result of the pressure that they are under to maintain this vow. Right. And I'm sorry, children are easy targets. Yeah. And that's what it really boils down to. They are easy targets and they are easier to control. They're easier to scare. It's vile and nefarious and all of the bad adjectives that you can tag onto it. But this is not who they are when they enter that monastery as novices. That's that's not them. In the vast majority of cases, it is not them. They become this because of what they are made to endure and the way that they are taught to think about their own sexuality. That's where the major problem with this lies. And it all stems from an economics decision, not a spiritual one. Right. So with that little aside set aside, whether you're a Catholic priest or just a kid at a Bible camp, You can make decisions. You can even take vows. You can stand up and say hands off until marriage or whatever it is. But that's not going to change who and what you are. And it's not going to change your motivations, your desires, or your drives. Being forced to make those decisions as part of a spiritual mandate can be very detrimental to how we start looking at sex and how we manage our own urges. That's whether you're a Catholic priest or whether you're a 16-year-old alone in the basement with your girlfriend. It doesn't matter. The author of the article then asserts that, quote, single sexuality has unique features. And here come the features. It is Christ-centered in that abstinence outside of marriage is sanctioned in the New Testament, which is true, and remaining chaste is a testimony to one's commitment to follow Christ. Same basic sentiment as in the other article. You can't be a good Christian if you don't live a life of chastity while you're single. The second part is that it's a denial of self 
and an exercise in putting others before ourselves to remain chaste. If we don't sleep with someone who winds up marrying someone else later, we have ensured that this person we love doesn't enter into marriage as quote-unquote damaged goods. Third point, it involves protecting your own emotions from all the quote-unquote bad things that come from sleeping with someone and eventually breaking up with them because when you sleep with someone you become one flesh and when the relationship ends a part of you dies or disappears with the other person it's like horcruxes for fuck's sake (laughs) every time you sleep with someone every time you sleep with someone a little piece of you just sort of goes with them yes you know i i remember hearing that a lot yeah wasn't it even a song? And it was Paul Young. Every time you go away, you take a piece of me with you. Oh, God. Oh, my okay. goodness. That was not even a Christian song. No. Also, engaging in sexual activity pushes aside your relationship with God because you're doing things he doesn't want you to do. Favoring your relationship with a person over your relationship with him. And by his own admission, he's a jealous asshole. Yeah. Well, he called himself a jealous God. I called him a jealous asshole. Mm-hmm. Um And so do a lot of other people, and they're right. The fourth point here is that it frames self-discipline within the confines of sexual behavior as an act of worship. The whole concept of offering your bodies as living sacrifices that we read about in Romans 12.1. Finally, being chaste and being sexually active are equal states of our sexual being. No, they are not. In one instance, you are experiencing things and cataloging emotions and learning how to manage and not manage intimate relationships. In the other, you're taking cold showers, getting more frustrated by the day, and becoming less and less capable of managing your urges in a safe, therapeutic, and mature sort of way. Those emotions and urges cannot mature without both examination and exploration. Does that mean that you have to have sex to mature emotionally in your sexuality? Well, no. It means that you need to be in charge of how you manage your sexuality and not leave it to a book, a pastor, or someone else's opinion of what your sex life should look like. And here's a little quote from the article. Godly, unmarried sexuality exalts Jesus, puts others before self, is good, and reveals Christ to others. Okay, I'm going to pick this one apart a little bit. Apparently, Jesus doesn't want me to be happy or make adult decisions. And really, this falls in lockstep with the concept of childlike faith. Daddy's supposed to be the final authority here, isn't he? I mean, we already know. We already know that God doesn't give two shits if we're happy. It's obvious, and I challenge anyone to show me anywhere in Scripture where he even makes passing reference to someone's happiness or contentment. It's not there. He only cares that we are obedient to him. He doesn't care if we're happy. He just wants us to be compliant. But how does not sleeping with someone exalt Jesus? And how does not sleeping with someone put others before ourselves? Well, we talked about the damaged goods aspect of it, but are we not sleeping with that person to protect them from being labeled quote-unquote used or let's even call it refurbished if they repent or are we abstaining to build confidence in our own faith if it's the latter well it's about us every bit as much as it is protecting other people from becoming damaged by us then she says that abstinence is good 
For who? This might be true if you're asexual and really don't want to deal with the responsibilities of sex, but for the rest of us, how is this particular area of self-denial good? We can observe the damage that it does. We do observe the damage that it does. And, you know, we talked about Catholic priests, and there are so many other examples. But her last point here is one that really jabbed at me. This was one of the close the laptop, walk away kind of moments. Not having sex outside marriage somehow reveals Christ to others. Oh, come the fuck on. How exactly? Never once, never once when I was witnessing to someone, did I use my own decisions about my sex life as a means of convincing them to believe the gospel. Never. And no one ever walked up to me and said, you know, your faith is really strong. You must be a virgin. Yeah. It never happened, not even once. Now, the last little bit of divisiveness in this article comes in the form of the assertion that God provides escape routes when we feel tempted. And this is a biblical concept. It shows up in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You will not be tempted beyond that which is common to man, but In all things, God provides an escape route. That's horribly paraphrased, but that's what it says. This comes in the form of his own protection and counsel and the placement of people in our lives who can run interference on our urges by simply being there. That's the point that she's trying to make. And one more little snippet here, directly from the article, quote, These brothers and sisters are his kingdom community for you on earth that he gives to teach, counsel, comfort, guide, and love you. Well, that's great. Now tell me what to do when I fall for one of my, quote, sisters in the Lord. And let me tell you, that's one of the most cringeworthy terms that I used to hear in those circles also. It was something that I never liked and never agreed with, although I wouldn't open my mouth about that at the time. No, No. just smile and nod and cringe on the inside, basically, is what I used to do with that Mm -hmm. one. Yeah. So I'm allowed to fall in love with my sister, but she ceases to be my sister when I marry her. You know, yeah. and, and we're talking metaphorically, we're not talking genetically, metaphorically in the context of this kind of thinking. I'm, I'm allowed to fall in love with my sister, That's but weird. I can't sleep with her until I marry her and then she's no longer my sister. <laughs> just, just, just stop. Why can't they just say fellow Christians? Why does it have to be brothers and sisters? Because because in this context, it takes on a very sinister meaning inside your head. Yeah. And that's what they want. It's shock value. More than anything else, it's shock value. And that is why they say it that way. Now, the next point in the article is that basically chastity is practice for heaven, which oddly enough, is the one actually truthful thing in this entire trash fire of an argument. For more on that, you can see our episode on the true nature of heaven, where we talk about how we're all going to be asexual automatons with no sense of self, just mindlessly worshiping for eternity. So I guess let's practice that now and not even think about ourselves as sexual beings. And finally, thank fake Jesus we're at the end of this. Finally, we get this. Women, oh Jesus! This, this okay. I this hate one, this so much. This one, I hate this it. This one was a slam the laptop moment. Women, you need to know your hormonal cycle and be aware of what times of the month you may be more prone towards sexual desires being stirred up. 
Men, you need to know as well how your bodies react to certain visual, tactile, and audio stimuli. It's like, okay, are you ready to conduct experiments on how your body reacts to visual, tactile, and audio stimuli? Well, here's the thing. I already know how my body reacts to visual, tactile, and audio stimuli. My question is, how do I get away from it? Yeah, right? It's like, okay, we can know, but then what do you do about it? There's nothing you can do about it. What am I supposed to do? Cloister myself for like a week out of my month away from mankind and the lusts of the flesh? I suppose because if you (laughs) if you don't, you're going to be throwing your pussy to everything. (laughs) Yeah, right. And and every every guy that looks halfway decent, you're just going to be throwing it at him. It's like, dude, I'm not in heat. I'm not a cat. (laughs) That's what I was thinking too. It's like we're we're people. We don't mate. That's not in our makeup. I mean, thankfully, we go along with sex, but most of us aren't having sex for the express purpose of procreation. We have sex for a lot of different reasons, and one of the least of which is procreation until we are in that spot where we are trying to procreate. And even then, I'm sorry, there is definitely a pleasure aspect to it, whether it's right. whether it's purpose-driven like that or whether it's just for fun, it's still good. And it still has a lot of layers to it. So this really does kind of, um, it kind of reduces women to feral cats who can't, <laughs> who can't control themselves. I'm not a cat. No. I'm your life. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Here we go. All right. So, yeah, this that, that was kind of a flash in the pan meme. So if you're listening to this in 2025 and don't get it, so sorry. But yeah, that was timely. I like that one, actually. Um, I am, I'm beside myself. I'm literally like, well, not, I'm not literally beside myself. That would be difficult. <laughs> that would be hard. I, I am, I am, however, quite beside myself looking at the words in both of these idiotic sentences. Yeah. Because they're just such complete and total bullshit yeah and it's like you're confusing us with animals that do this instinctually this has absolutely nothing to do with how human beings manage their sexual thoughts and their sexual urges it has nothing to do with how we manage it i mean i really i can't even with any more of this but you know what i'm going to i'm going to because there are two more hellish quotes here that i need to get through Let's start with godly unmarried sexuality is lived out as a person seeks to live life fully given over to Jesus and his kingdom purposes, again, agrees with the first article in that sentiment. And then she goes on to say that the unmarried person is called to depend upon Christ, not enjoying the sexual pleasures of marriage, but finding pleasure, pleasure in abstaining that aligns his or her will with that of God. So again, God doesn't care if you're happy. God doesn't care if you actually do have the abundant life that he is said to promise you through salvation. He doesn't care about any of that. But he does care about whether or not you do things the way that he wants or the way that his crackpot followers interpret him to want. Right. But let's just assume for a minute that this is what God wants Or if he existed, this is what he would want for the single Christian. Let's not forget, this is the same God who puts his stamp of approval on all the behaviors I listed earlier and gives 
all of them his endorsement by way of not correcting or punishing the people who engage in them. Listen to me and listen carefully. If we are to assume that this God is real, he cares nothing about how people interact with each other. He only cares how people interact with him and whether or not they do what he tells them to do. One thing that most of the people in these stories have in common was an attitude of obedience to God. Not uniformly, but in a lot of instances, that was a running theme. Let God control you and you can treat people any way you want. There are no stories or verses in the Bible that corroborate any of the opinions in these articles, except for maybe a couple of fleeting out of context scripture verses here and there. All of them are largely and some totally extra biblical and they reflect the attitudes of the authors, not the authoritative word of God as Christians will describe it. And just another little pet peeve of mine here. Don't bring up Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of this. God didn't destroy these cities because they were full of quote-unquote sexual deviants. Big air quotes there, sexual deviants. He destroyed the city because the people had a sense of autonomy and were living life on their terms. He couldn't control them, so he killed them, period. The definition of a righteous man in that context was someone who gave two shits what God wanted. And God wanted those people to stop worshiping the flesh and notice him. They didn't, so they died. And let's just be real here. Hedonism is way more fun than prayer circles and the people of those cities chose lives of personal empowerment over ecclesiastical slavery. That was their downfall. That's what happened and that's why they were smited and killed off. God didn't care what they were doing. He cared that he was being ignored. Same thing with the flood, and it was the same basic concept. He didn't like the way things were going. People seemed a little bit too autonomous. This whole quote-unquote free will thing mm. that he imparted to them, well, that kind of backfired on him. So he said, okay, do over, and just killed everyone except for this one family. As we're getting toward the end of this, I did want to bring up one more really good resource that I found out there. And this is someone who is on our side. This is someone who came out of evangelical faith and the things that she experienced. This comes from an article on catapult.co by Amanda Miska. And the article is called True Love Waits, How Saving Myself made me lose my faith. And you know what? I, I was made to sit through a True Love Wade seminar. Oh, yeah. And it was as hellish as you would think. Um, we're going long. Otherwise, I would go into some details about that. But I really want to end off with this because I think it puts a good cap on this entire discussion. Yeah. Um, I think that some of the points here explain the dangers in this kind of thinking better than I ever could. So let's start out with a quote. When you were told not to cross a line, your life becomes defined by the line. The rule becomes a cage. You can see between the bars. You can reach out a toe, a finger, a whole arm. You know, even if you can't articulate it, perhaps because it defies articulation, that you are meant to fly. But you've been told that flight is only safe when you tether yourself to someone stronger. This goes right back to the whole hot stove argument. Right. And... I like the metaphor of basically the caged bird here, 
where there's more potential, there's more to be experienced, but you're locked inside this cage. And that is precisely what most evangelical doctrine does to you. Whether it has to do with sex or anything else, it confines you to a space. The point here is that pushing the notion of sexual purity on Christian singles is a form of both physical and emotional bondage. Your mind is your enemy and your body is a weapon with a hair trigger. You need to hand both over to this invisible entity to manage. Only one problem. That entity is imaginary and things just keep getting more and more difficult until you quote unquote fail and sacrifice all of your self-worth for this momentary bliss. It makes you afraid of sex to the point where even when it's finally allowed, it's difficult to justify. Shell and I, mostly I, but Shell and I had issues with this during our honeymoon. My brain could not, could not fathom how something that was a sin less than a day ago is now somehow not only allowed, but expected. Those shackles are heavy and they are tight and they keep some people from looking at sex in a healthy way, even when they have a trusted, committed partner with whom to experience it without judgment or scrutiny. And there are a bunch of things that she brings up in this article that I just want to point out just very, very briefly as we head to the end of this. We already discussed the forbidden fruit aspect of this. Then there's the part where you start cataloging your behavior and assigning yourself damage points for all of the bad things that you've done sexually, mm -hmm. right down to things like kissing and heavy petting. You start making deals with yourself and redefining what virginity is because, well, I've already done this. So does that mean that I'm not a virgin anymore? Does that mean that I've had sex? Well, no, it means that you've had certain sexual experiences, but sexual experiences and sex, at least in my mind, are different. Right. There are evangelicals out there and definitely a word of life concept here that kissing is sex, mm. that any kind of non-platonic contact between people is sex. No, it really isn't. It can lead to it, like we talked about earlier, but it's not sex. When we listen to all of this tripe, we're made to see ourselves as flawed simply for having a sex drive. I, to the best of my understanding, am made in the quote-unquote image and likeness of my creator. So if I'm flawed, I think I've said this before, so is he. Period. End of story. If I am his image and likeness, and this is a flaw, then it's a flaw that I share with him. And God's not supposed to be flawed, is he? And we just talked about this too. Girls are shamed for how they dress because it entices boys too much. Well, you know what? We all have the responsibility to manage right. our urges. Whether we're male or female, it's our responsibility to be human beings. It goes back to the notion of we're not feral. We're not wild animals. We don't mate. We approach sex from a very different angle. And... That means that we have responsibilities when it comes to how we deal with the things that we see and hear and touch and whatever. It's our responsibility to learn to deal with them. Then there's the whole aspect of marrying, quote, the first person who touches you. And this immediately brought to mind a story one of my friends told me about her wedding night with her first husband, where they literally took a picture before they got down to what they were going to do 
so that they would have their, quote, last photo as virgins. Wow. This is the level of stock that they placed in this, and that was not a long marriage. Those two were not together for very long. So the whole notion of saving it for your husband or saving it for your spouse, well, you know what? Life happens. Mm -hmm. So what happens after that? Well, in this particular instance, when she met the person that she's married to now, she told me point blank, at that point, we just had sex when we were ready. Yeah. Which is what should have happened with the first husband. Because maybe you would have figured out that you weren't compatible and that marriage wouldn't have happened. When you're ready is an important aspect to this. Yeah. It's the most important aspect. Readiness and emotional mental preparedness these are very very important details and then there's well this that falls right on the heels of it the inevitable the inevitable divorce because so many christians get married because they want to have sex yeah and they're burning with desire and they're following paul's advice and saying it's better to marry than burn with lust so they do And then a few years later, they roll over in bed and they look at this person laying next to them and realize they don't know them. Right. And that's where the problems start. Then there's the reimagining of what sex is and not waiting for it until you're married again. Same thing that we just talked about. And then there are the long-term scars, not of exploring sexually, but of not exploring sexually and she gets into that in a lot of detail i'm going to leave it to you guys to read the article the link is going to be in the show notes and this is one that i really think warrants the five minutes that it's go- or less that it's going to take to read so bottom line time with this let's make a few things very clear here for starters and single evangelical christians especially i want you to listen to this And if you're coming out of this and your mind is just starting to change and you need a little bit of affirmation that the things that you're thinking about this are true, listen up because this is for you. For starters, your body is yours. The only one who can decide what to do with it or what is done to it in a sexual context is you. You will not find yourself feeling empty and alone forever if you break up with the first person you have sex with. You are not damaged goods if you decide to marry someone after sleeping with someone else. Your feelings, desires, and impulses are natural, and they are good. They indicate that nature has done its job, and that, in the simplest of terms, is giving your brain a sense of urgency to procreate. They also indicate the intricacy of your mental and emotional makeup, since making babies is probably the last thing on your mind when the heat is on. We have sex for a lot of different reasons. Some are good, some are bad. None are anyone's business but yours and, when applicable, your partner's. Because sex doesn't always have to involve a partner. And it's not wrong. Now, the good reasons for exploring your sexuality involve things like establishing and maintaining a close connection with someone with whom you want to be closer Emotional readiness is another good reason to start exploring sexually. Good self-esteem and the desire for gratification, and that's giving as well as getting, is a good reason. And the increase in your perceived self-worth is another one. Lastly, on the very, very short list of good reasons to explore your sexuality, you're in love 
or at least head over heels and like. Because guess what? Having an FWB can be fun too. Now, there are also bad reasons for exploring your sexuality. And some of those include, well, it's my wedding night, so I guess I gotta. My husband or spouse is demanding it. If you are using your sexuality to gain personal empowerment and you're out there basically connecting notches on the bedpost, you know what? I'm not about to make moral judgments here, but I think there are better reasons and it doesn't really make you look like a very good person. I'm just going to put that out there. Lastly, you only consider what you stand to get, not what you are able to give. The best sex is the sex that involves giving as well as receiving. And I'm not just talking on a physical level. I'm talking on every possible level where you can relate to that other person or people, let's be fair, that you are with at that time. It should be about both of you or all of you or whatever the scenario is, having a good time with it, feeling good about it, and feeling good about yourselves after. And just to point out the obvious, please keep in mind that you do not have to wait for marriage. You just have to wait until you're ready. And even if you think you're ready, you might make a few mistakes early on too. You might get a painful education about what happens when fools rush in. And while it may bother you that you let those things happen, you then have the opportunity to do something that most evangelicals avoid at all costs. You have the opportunity to learn. You learn why those decisions were wrong for you and you develop a suit of armor that keeps you from making some of them over and over again. Not all, but some. And there will be repeats. You will make the same mistakes more than once. It's just that simple. And if you do find yourself loving and losing, please understand that you are not going to be scarred for life just because you slept with someone and now they're gone. You are not damaged. It won't hurt forever and it won't keep you from having other healthy relationships later. Even in secular circles, sex can be vilified with terms like slut, whore, walk of shame, these sorts of things. Let's also be clear about these things. Enjoying sex is not slutty. Enjoying sex with a lot of people isn't slutty. It's simply an indicator of your wants and how they manifest. If you have the emotional fortitude to be able to handle the hello, goodbye aspect of having multiple casual partners, fuck on. I mean, just enjoy yourself. That's your business. And there is no shame in making clear-headed, conscious decisions about who you sleep with, even if you only intend for it to happen once. I will caution against mixing things like alcohol and casual sex, but that's also up to you. Protect your body, protect your emotions, and protect your self-esteem. It's a matter of that whole cataloging thing that I talked about a minute ago. Getting hurt, assessing what happened, how and why, and making better decisions next time. But forgive yourself for the ones that you made this time. Lastly, as we said before, it's important to live your life all of your life, every part of your life on your terms, because that's what it is. It's your life. Live it in a way that reflects who you are, not what other people tell you it should. Make your own decisions about your body and your emotions, because at the end of the day, you're the only one who has to live with both. Your pastor doesn't, and your imaginary God doesn't. Purpose to enjoy learning about yourself 
and to learn about and enjoy sex as the natural, affirming, and not at all sinful thing that it is. Be responsible, but be happy. It's just one more step that you can take toward getting and staying unbound. enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.